Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome back to LexLogic No Longer Silenced, episode six, Farewell to Colorado. And this is part two. And in this portion of the episode, I'm going to talk a lot about this unfortunate event that I found myself in based on the choices that I had made. And I'm going to get really into the realities behind getting a DUI and some of the things that I had to go through because I made this unfortunate choice. And then we will move on to those challenges and how I navigated through them and how I came out of it to where I am today. So without rambling too much, let's just go ahead and get into it. And I really hope you enjoy this last part of episode six. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we got it. This meeting oh, is definitely being recorded. All right. So we're back with, no. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> and we're back. Um, there's a little bit of a pause. So I'm just getting my <laughs> bearings again. Remember, this is not scripted and there are no notes throughout this no, podcast. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. That's why I'm sitting here like, what do I say? <laughs> uh, I want to take this time to talk about the realities of a DUI because I don't think people really understand. I yeah. can't speak on other states. I know people who have gotten DUIs in other states. And as far as I know, my punishment was times 10 of other people's punishments. The rules in Colorado, the laws in Colorado are very extreme. So, you know, I spent nine hours in jail they, I, you know, one of the things that I felt guilty about for a while is I hate to say, I don't even know how to say this without it sounding kind of weird, but I had a very good experience in jail versus um, some other people. Like I, the, the cops were nice to me. Yeah. They respected me. Mm-hmm. I was allowed to call as many people as I wanted as many times as I wanted um, there were there was even a point where they let me out of my cell for a couple hours and I just sat in the room with the phones and just called people stayed on the phone with mm-hmm. my mom for a while called my dad like I was on the phone with people so because it was very traumatic I was in jail yeah. yeah but that is very interesting that you point to some of those areas where you even realize as bad as it was it's it could be, and it is for other people worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And during this time, this was summer and it was during all of this George Floyd stuff. It was during this police brutality stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I feel guilty that I can sit here and say that I had a good experience with being arrested and being put in jail. 
And I had to, I told myself like, this is just how it should be across the board. Everyone should experience this. I'm not saying like your crime should be minimized in any way, but you should no, be but treated with respect. Yeah. I was treated yeah. with respect and respect and dignity. I was the only female in jail. I want to point out everyone else was male. And that was, I was, tri- I was scared. And I remember when I was in the back of the cop car, I was crying and I told the cop, like, I have been assaulted. I don't want to go to jail. I am scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want it to happen again. And he was like, it's not going to happen. Like, we're going to put you in your own cell. You're going to be by yourself. You're not going to talk to anyone and we'll take care of you. And it's just like, that's how it should be. Mm-hmm. That's how it should be for everyone. Everyone should be allowed to call as many people as they want, as many times as they want. They should be treated with dignity and respect. And I was. And I even remember um, when I got out of jail, finally, I was sitting on the curb outside of jail. It was nine in the morning at this point. And I was like, Alexis, you are sitting on a curb outside of jail smoking a cigarette. What the hell is wrong with you? And I was crying and I was just like, I cannot believe this just happened. I just spent nine hours in jail, so on and so forth. Mm. And the two cops that arrested me um, walked out of the jail and I like turned and looked at them and I was, they were nice to me, but I was just like, oh, Jesus Christ. And they were like, you are going to be okay. You are going to get through this and you're going to come out of this better. And they gave me a hug and walked away. But also you know, jail's not fun. It's disgusting. It smells, it's loud. People are annoying during times of COVID. It's weird too. Cause they give you a mask and I'm pretty, I question the sand, like the um, sanitation. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not exactly, it's not where you want to be anyway, but it's definitely not where you want to be during COVID outbreak. Yeah, yeah. No, it's terrible. But then When I got home from jail, I decided, you know, I'm stopping drinking right now. I'm never going to drink again. Like in that moment, I was like, I'm never drinking again. I'm going to be sober the rest of my life. I had all of Uh these like goals. Were they realistic? No. I, I think drinking is a privilege. You turn 21 and it's a privilege. You are now allowed to buy alcohol. You are now allowed to go to a bar. But you can't do those things if you are not responsible. And until I can trust myself to be responsible with handling my liquor and handling it and using it in a sense that's not hurting myself or anyone else, I'm not Mm -hmm. going to drink. And that may mean that I have to be sober for a very long time, if not the rest of my life. I'm not going to set the expectation of you need to be sober the rest of your life because that's not fair. I'm 25, you know, like I have a long life ahead of me, hopefully. And setting an expectation like that is not, it's just not realistic. But anyway, at that moment, I was like, I am not drinking. I need to utilize what actually is helpful to you, which is medical marijuana. I had my medical marijuana card. I have my medical marijuana card for PTSD. It is the only thing that helps me with my night terrors. I have really, really, really bad night terrors. And the only thing that would help me is to eat an edible or to use an oil or to smoke. And that's why I had a medical card. And I had utilized that for three years until drinking became the preferred method. Mm. 
So I was like, you know what? You need to utilize what you have. You need to stop drinking because it puts you and other people in danger. And you're going to get through this. So I was not sentenced. So this happened in June of 2020. What people don't know is this happened before I started the podcast. When I did my first episode, I had already had my DUI. I was not ready to talk about it. I wanted to deal with it privately before I discussed it. But it was something that I was dealing with and have been dealing with since June. I did not get sentenced until November, November 30th. And it was... It was a long process. Court is not fun, which is ironic because I used to go to court with my mom all the time. My mom's (laughs) a prosecutor. I used to watch her prosecute people for doing this exact same thing that I did. And being on the, that side of the bench was not fun. And not just that side of the bench, but on the opposite side of my mom, I was the defendant. And seeing that also on paper is not fun. State of Colorado versus Alexis. Never in my life did I think I was going to see something like that. And it was a long, dragged out process, um, obviously. And nothing goes through the courts quickly, that's for sure. No, absolutely yeah. not. And, you know, I lawyers are expensive. Um, just so you guys know, my lawyer cost me $4,500 that I don't have. And mm-hmm. especially after a year of COVID and not working, that was a big, 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 big loss. My lawyer did a lot for me, uh, you know, at, in no way, shape or form were we ever trying to minimize the situation, make excuses, anything like that. But we needed the judge to know that it wasn't just me going out and partying, drinking at a bar one night and I got behind the wheel and drove because I had been on a bender. I had been drinking for multiple days consecutively. The alcohol content of my blood was very high. The day that I got my DUI, I actually didn't even drink that much. But, you know, compared to other days during my bender, I had days where I drank for 16 hours straight. Or I had days where I just literally didn't stop drinking. I didn't go to sleep and I just kept drinking. Um, That specific day, I did not do that. And I just needed time. And I was like, you know what? I need to go home. I need to just not be here right now. And I got pulled over. And, you know, I think it's really important to say that I was not, you know, swerving. I was not driving erratically. I was not, I didn't hit something. I didn't like get in an accident. I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't hurt myself. Thank God I did not hurt anyone or hurt myself. Um, I was just speeding. I denied doing a breathalyzer test because I've always been told if you deny the breathalyzer and ask for the blood test, it... In Colorado, if you do the breathalyzer and you are over 0.08, which is the legal limit, yeah, you get your driver's license taken away right there. Mm. End of story. If you do the blood test, it prolongs it. And you can keep your driver's license until you get sentenced. And at that point in my life, I needed my car. Um, I was door dashing to make money because I didn't have a job. So I needed my car. That was my income. So I denied that, but because of the binge, because of the bender I was on, my blood alcohol content was way higher. I was three times the legal limit in the eyes of the law. That night, I was not three times the legal limit, but scientifically, I was. There is no, the the court system doesn't care about that. Yeah. 
They don't care. They see you're three times the legal limit. You are three times the legal limit that night. Even though that's not how it works, you know, especially with blood. And after, oh, because it's yeah, because it's the blood. Okay, it yeah. took me a, a second to realize, but yeah, in your blood, uh, I see. Because it stays interesting. In, yeah, it stays in your yeah. blood. See again, that's something that, that this is why it's good to talk about these things because you just don't know or mm-hmm. people don't discuss it like this, and so that's why it's important for you to share this stuff and for people yeah. to hear. Okay, that's didn't even. Yeah. So if you're on a bit, like you go on a binge and you've been Mm -hmm. drinking for a bunch of days consecutively, your blood alcohol content is going to be way higher than if you were to do a breathalyzer. Would I have been Mm -hmm. over 0.08? Sure. Absolutely. But I wouldn't have been three times legal limit. There's no way. It's concentrated in your blood at that point. And when you are on a bender like that, it's going to stay there. It's harder to detox that. So because of that, on top of the fact that I utilized medical marijuana every single day, all day, not all day, but most of the day, for three years straight, my toxicity levels regarding THC were also very high. That specific day, I did not smoke. I did not ingest anything. I did not utilize THC in any way. However, because my toxicity levels were so high due to the many years of use, I was not allowed to use medical marijuana. The the court system looked at me and said, you have a drug problem and you have a drinking problem. I don't care what your story is, what your situation is. That's how we see it on paper. That's what the piece of paper says. So that's what you are. When it came to sentencing, They told me, they said, as of today, you are obviously no longer allowed to drink, which to me wasn't a big deal. I had already stopped. Yeah. But then when he said, you are not allowed to smoke, I was like, I have a medical card. I have a medical need for this. You can't do that to me. You know what I mean? Like it it was horrible. And what they don't realize because of the lack of research You cannot ask someone to stop cold turkey when they are utilizing a medication. I went through a withdrawal, which was awful. I had cold sweats. I was shaking. I had a fever. I could not eat. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't sleep. And because of this withdrawal that I had and all of this pain I was having, I had no idea that Mm -hmm. at the same time, This week that I had to stop smoking marijuana, I had appendicitis at the same time. Oh, yeah. This was, I I remember this. Yeah. I didn't, it's interesting because with the new context, right, that you're Mm -hmm. providing now and you're sharing this story, it does, yeah, it, it, it is interesting how these things coincided. Like you said, you had, when was that? December? December 5th. Okay. Yeah. So I was sentenced on November 30th. I immediately had withdrawal within two days. I started noticing towards that December 5th that um, I was having some pain. Like, yes, I was in pain from the withdrawal, but I was like, there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong. I literally had to like be bent over in order to be relieved in any way. I could not go to the bathroom. I could not eat. I just, I, there was something wrong. And finally I was like, I need to go to the emergency room. There's something wrong. 
And I get there and they run a bunch of tests and they come and I'm throw at this point, I'm throwing up. Like I'm literally just, it was a mess. And he, the doctor comes back and he's like, um, you have appendicitis. You need to go into emergency surgery right now. If you had waited a minute longer, you would have, your appendix would have ruptured and we would be having a completely different conversation. Had, would I probably had still had appendicitis if I didn't have the withdrawal? Sure. A hundred percent. That's something that just, unfortunately it happens, but because of the withdrawal, I put myself in danger for many reasons. I, it was bad. And the, but the court system and the system in general doesn't educate themselves on marijuana and it, yeah, it's still a drug just like Xanax, just like Advil. You know what I mean? Like you take something enough for consecutive days and then you just Mm -hmm. stop. You're screwed. You are screwed. Mm -hmm. And I did not have the chance to wean myself off of that. Yeah. However, what's crazy to me is the court system would have rather had me go back on Xanax after I made the personal choice to not be on controlled medication anymore because of how it made me feel and act. They would have preferred me be on Xanax. And because it's you can get it prescribed by a doctor and a doctor can give you a prescription for it and say, here you go. You need this for your anxiety. The judge would have rather had me on Xanax than utilizing medical marijuana to treat my PTSD. And to me, that was mind blowing. Mm. I struggled for a long time with that. And I still struggle with it. It's hard. I have, it's not been easy. I have been sober from alcohol, which has not been an issue. And I have been sober from THC, which has been an issue. I have now had night terrors every single night since November 30th. I have a hard time eating. I've lost a lot of weight. My mental health did suffer. Yeah. I, it was hard. It was, and it is hard. I found ways to deal with it and to cope with it, but you took a medicine from me. It wasn't, yeah, was it a social thing every, every now and then? Yeah, people smoke marijuana in Colorado, it's legal. But at the end of the day, that's what helped me sleep. You know, anyway, I think there needs to be more research on marijuana. I think that the system needs to do more research on making people stop. I get it, you know, like my levels were high, Figure out the science behind that first and then give me a chance to wean myself off of it so that I can pee in a cup twice a month and give you clean readings, which is part of probation. You got to do UAs. I do them twice a month, $15 each. Uh, So that's adding to the... um, That is so... So you have to pay for your test. Yeah. So let's add this up real quick. $4,500 for a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. $15 for a UA twice a month for me, but UAs actually range anywhere from 15 to $75 based on the type of test that you are doing. My first one was $75. My second one was also $75. And then we got it knocked down to 15. Cause I was like, hello, I cannot afford this. How many months? So, so it's been since November. So six, seven months now. Okay. But I have 18 months. So I shouldn't be asked. Me neither. But I (laughs) I have 18 months probation. Shitload of money. Yeah. (laughs) On top of another more things that I was sentenced with. 
I had to do, so originally they wanted me to do 10 days in jail. No, (laughs) I was like, I'm never going to jail again in my life. I was lucky because, you know, I don't have anyone out here. I don't have friends. I don't have family out here that I speak to anymore, at least. Uh And I had no one to take care of my dog, nor the funds to put her in care for 10 days. So they allowed me to bypass going to jail for 10 days. And instead I had to do what's called work under program. That was $10 a day. So a hundred dollars. So they just, I mean, and I know this is a problem obviously, but it's a money pit. They just make money off of, yeah. I mean, it's already bad enough. The system's already bad enough and you have to pay all these things, but like you don't know about these little things like, oh, you have to pay for the labor mm-hmm. you're doing and you have to pay for the tests that they require yeah. from you. Yeah. yeah. So then uh, you have, I had to, I have to do therapy, which that was not, I didn't yeah. care. I was like, you can th- sentence me to a hundred weeks of therapy. I don't care. And if anything, that's what is the most important aspect of any of this. I think that yeah. that's probably the part that should be emphasized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people need to yeah, yeah. have therapy. And yeah. this is, I was actually talking to my therapist today about that and how yeah. like it's the system's broken. They talk mm-hmm. about how you, you get a DUI and then they want to deter you from it, but they only give you two resource or three resources that actually help you with the rehabilitation aspect of it. And the rest is just a way to make revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had, I have to do 26 weeks of therapy. I'm in a women's seeking safety group therapy, which I love. I love it so much. It's like, I actually look forward to it, but that's $20 a day. So mm-hmm. 20 times 26. Someone do that math for me. Mm, and then, a lot of door dashing. Yeah. And then when that's complete, I have to do 12 weeks of a drug education program where I basically have to just learn about what yeah. a being, addic- being addicted does to you and your body and the dangers of it and stuff like that. I'm almost done with therapy. I have like seven weeks left of it. So I'm almost done. And then I'll do the 12 weeks and then I'll be done. I also had to do the MAD Victims Impact Panel, oh, the Mothers Against yeah. Drunk Driving, which is $65. And then I had to do community service, uh, which is $100. And I had 48 hours of community service. So that was my entire sentence, plus 18 months probation, plus a court fine. So mm-hmm. we're looking at, very, I think, really close to like the $10,000 mark, in my opinion. At least when the 18 months is finished, with the yeah. ways and, you know, everything else that I have to still pay for. Um, so yeah. it is, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. And, um, oh, and I have to have my interlock for two years, which is $80 a month. And that's the system on your car that. Yes. Yes. That, and <laughs> let me just tell you guys real quick. I, um, hate it. I'm cool with it because it's like, whatever. Honestly, when I got my sentence, that was the least of my worries. It's not that big of a deal, whatever. It, it, I, in my opinion, we talked about this. If you want people to not drink and drive, just put an interlock on everybody's car. (laughs) I'm like, I'm how else do you, you have to just trust that, uh, like people in society are not going to drink and drive. You know, I cannot, I don't want to say this because it sounds negative, but I don't know a single person in my life who hasn't at one point or another gotten behind the wheel of a car when they probably should not have. It happens. 
if you really don't want people to drink and drive, put an interlock in everybody's car. It sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. It sucks. But that's, the, but that's yeah. No, that's it's how it the works. only true deterrent. Obviously, yeah. that'll never work in America because freedom. Yeah. But My freedom rights. doesn't mean you get to, there's laws and rules still, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And it sucks. It's embarrassing. It's, I get anxiety every single time I have to Mm -hmm. drive anywhere. If I don't have to drive somewhere, I'm not doing it because especially in the winter here in Colorado. So it's different in every state. There are some states that allow you to remove your interlock device if it's too hot or too cold outside because the weather will mess with it. And say Colorado is, of course, one of the states that does not allow that. However, if you leave the interlock in freezing conditions or really hot conditions, it will fuck up your device. And guess who has to pay for that to get fixed? Me. Yep. Of course. Always. Yeah. Everything comes back. Yeah. On top of that, it takes forever to warm up it takes forever to turn on so you're sitting there when it's negative seven degrees outside freezing waiting for it to turn on then you have to blow into it for it to start then it goes off every 5 10 20 45 and 60 minutes so it rotates it goes off five minutes whatever yeah what you can expect is when you go through the drive-through line at chick-fil-a that it's not going to go off when you're taking your order or when you're grabbing your food and it goes off and it's not discreet, it's huge. Yeah. It's the, like this, it has to be four inches tall and like three inches wide. It's this big brick looking thing yeah. that beeps extremely loudly. And there's a big camera that takes pictures of you when you blow into the device and it sucks. I can't drive with my windows down anymore. I can't go through a drive-through without thinking that someone's going to see it or someone's going to hear it go off or I'm going to have to blow. I've had a few times where I've been like giving someone my order and then it's gone off and I have to be like, sorry, hold on a second, blow into my breathalyzer. And it's embarrassing. And I have to deal with that for two years. It sucks. It's part of the sentence, but that's the reality of it. So if you don't want to do that, don't drink and drive. Just don't. Don't do it. Yep. And that's really the ultimate, that's what this all kind of leads to, in a sense. It all culminates in that thing that, like you said, so many people do it. It doesn't seem like it's a big deal and all all of that. Um, You know, I think people think of it. And when people think of it, they think of like really extreme, like people who are at the bar completely wasted. You know, you see on TV and all that and someone tries to take their keys away from them and they get belligerent. And I feel like that's the picture we have of like drunk drivers, someone driving into a tree, someone, Mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. But I I think that it's important to talk about it because it's, it's a situation, it's happening, it's common, and we just need to talk about it and have more dialogue around it. And also it's really important to also say that the way that the system goes about handling DUIs might need some updating. Um, I was talking to my therapist about that today that, yeah, there's only three elements of this whole entire sentence that have actually been a rehabilitation aspect of it, which is therapy, both therapies, the drug education and the group therapy and the uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving Victim Impact Panel. 
those three things really make you think twice about it. But when I'm out there raking wet leaves in a cemetery for $10 for eight hours, I, all I think is I'm never going to pick up a rake again. But I see why they want you to have a bad time. It's supposed to be a deterrent. Like, okay, I had to do this miserable thing. It was a lot of work and I never want to do this again. I get it from that perspective. But like you said, there are these other things that are more important to get across and make sure are actually impacting people and are actually making people change behaviors and and all of that rather than just punishments that really aren't having the intended effect perhaps yeah and honestly is it really a deterrent because being so being on we have to sit on these jail buses in the mornings when um we were waiting for everyone to get checked in and we were figuring out where we're going for the day and I that was the I would have picked up trash at the dump over sitting on those buses any day because you're sitting there in the freezing cold and you're with all these people who are in the same situation as you. And you're, I'm listening to these conversations that are being had by people on the bus. And people are like, yeah, this is my fourth DUI. This is my third DUI. This is my ninth DUI. I have 45 days of work under program. I have 65 days of work release when I'm done with that. All of these things. And I'm like, and you are still doing getting it. DUIs? Yeah. I'm never, I will never put myself in this situation again. Yet there's people that are just like, I don't care. I'll do it again. Apparently they have money, like a money tree in their backyard because they can afford doing 65 days of work, like work unders. And I'm just like, I couldn't even do 10. Yeah. It's interesting. Huh. So is it really helping? Yeah. Well, for those people, certainly not. And which is why, you know, you have to think about also the number of events that we're on and and all those things need to be taken into account as well, I think. Yeah. This is self-titled, not from a song. (laughs) (laughs) This section is called From Rock Bottom to Higher Elevations. It's my favorite uh, section. We have to trademark that. That's an Aaron Hill I know you can't release this episode yet because it's not trip. No, it's fine. I'm sure it's already taken by something else, but I feel like obviously the title speaks for itself, but what I'm really interested in here is diving into your experience with kind of that higher elevation part and looking towards the future, figuring out where you go from here. So my first question is, what are you grateful for in the year from the year 2020? As weird as it sounds, I definitely am grateful for the DUI. Obviously, if I could go back in time, I would have preferred to not get a DUI. Uh, I definitely, you know, I definitely would have planned better. I would have probably not, you know, there's so many shoulda, coulda, wouldas from that situation. Um, And it's really unfortunate and it sucks because it did a lot of damage, you know, as I've already talked about, and uh, it was hard to come back from. However, this rock bottom really forced me to grow. I, in my past, whenever I would find myself in shitty situations, whether it was something I brought upon myself or it was just life, you know, things happen people you sometimes are collateral damage in other people's stories as well. Whenever I would find myself in those situations, I would always try to put blame on someone else and move on. 
or I would find a way to like put that baggage or whatever that was onto someone else or have someone else deal with it or just get out of it in some way. And this was a situation that I couldn't do that. (laughs) I couldn't say, I don't want to deal with this DUI. Mom, you deal with it for me. Or I don't want to deal with the repercussions of this DUI. I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just going to act like it's not there. I'm just going to shove it in a closet and not look at it or listen to to anything about it or whatever. That's not an option. You have to deal with a DUI. And if you don't deal with it, makes it a lot worse. And so this was a situation that forced me to be a big girl and handle it. It was, it came with a lot too, because the DUI was also the reason why I had finally decided like the people that I surrounded myself, while I can't put blame on them at all, they weren't the one that chose to drink and drive that night. These people were not going to be able to support me through the rest of this journey. Obviously it was going to be court mandated that I had to stay sober, even though I had made the personal choice to stop drinking before it was actually a mandate for me. I knew that I was not going to be supported in that based on the people that I had in my life at that time. And so I had to make that choice to walk away from my comfort zone, even though the friendship was unhealthy at this point, And I had been aware of that old Alexis before DUI would have just thought like, whatever, like I need, I need people to get me through this. I need support. I need someone to vent to about these things I'm about to go through stuff like that. And I had a day to myself where I was like, I can't do that. I need to walk away from these people. And I forced myself into isolation. And I realized that this was something that I needed to handle by myself. That's one of the reasons why I chose to not tell anybody I needed to, I needed to deal with this. This was nobody's business. This was my story to tell. And the less people that knew, the less opinions I had to hear. No one could or can tell me anything that I haven't already told myself about this DUI. I was very mean to myself (laughs) throughout the beginning of the DUI, but I'm grateful for it because I handled it. I had 18 months to do what I had to do. My sentence, I listed it earlier. I had 18 months to do that. I did that in six. I did everything that I was supposed to do in six months. I took it seriously from day one. I went to all of my probation meetings. I paid off all my fees. I did every UA and came back clean. I did my work under program, even though it was hard. You know, I did my community service. That was hard. But all of those things, we talked about it earlier that some of those things, I was just like, what do you learn from this? Like, what what do you take away from this? There's only a few things that actually help you on the path to like rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of internal things that I learned. I am a a person that needs to be on a schedule. I need people telling me what to do, as weird as that sounds. I need someone to say, you need to be here at this time on this day, or you're in trouble. With community service, they don't do that. They're just like, come when you want, leave when you want. There you go. Have fun. And I don't tell me that because I won't come. And obviously, if I didn't go, I wasn't going to get off probation. So Mm -hmm. I had to find the self-discipline that I do not have 
to do that. And I did. So I look back on the last six months and even year since the DUI, and there's been major, major growth and major changes within myself. And no one can say that they helped me. I did it. I didn't have anyone to support me. I didn't have anyone to talk to about the challenges that came with the sentence of the DUI. I handled it completely by myself. And this is the first time in my life that I can say I handled my shit. And to me, I am so proud of myself. And in no way, like I've said before, do I ever want to minimize the severity of a DUI? But mm-hmm. I handled it and I took responsibility. I took accountability. I faced this judge and I pled guilty. I accepted my sentence with dignity and grace and I handled it. And I could not be more proud of myself for doing that because a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, there's no way I would have thrown in the towel. I would have been defeated and I would have probably done something dumb or, you know, just, I wasn't in the right mindset. And at that point in my life, when I got the DUI, it was that wake up call and it was time to grow up. And I did. So I'm, Mm -hmm. again, as weird as it sounds, I am grateful for the DUI because it forced me to handle my shit. Definitely. Yeah. Sometimes we're put in those situations and you just have to have to, you're forced to grow up, push through it. And yeah. Yeah. So obviously throughout all of this, there are, you know, you're working. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey through working in Colorado, the different jobs you held and where that led you to now. Yeah. So like, I'm, I think I mentioned in the first part, um, When I first moved here, I was just serving. I was working in the restaurant industry. It was quick, easy money. I always left with cash. And I didn't have a lifestyle at that moment that, like my rent, I was really lucky. My rent was cheap. My bills were cheap. It was just me. So it's not like I had to pay utilities for a bunch of people. And it got to a point where I was just kind of like, I'm over serving. I'm not good at it. I hate people, kind of. People are mean when they're hungry. And I used to cry pretty regularly at work. Uh, I would get overwhelmed by dinner rushes and lunch rushes and having, you know, a seven table section or stuff like that. And I worked in a pretty upscale restaurant. I wouldn't say it was like a white tablecloth kind of situation, but it was the price point on the menu was pretty expensive. That wasn't really my vibe to be quite Mm -hmm. honest with you. And I was just over it. I was done. I hated the hours and I needed more money. I wanted more money and I needed something fulfilling because at the time, this was when I first moved to Colorado. So I was in that mindset also of like, I want better for myself. I need to do something more fulfilling and serving is just not it. Yeah. So I applied to a real estate job, just working the front desk. That was my element. That was something I was comfortable with. I obviously had my real estate license in New Mexico and I figured, you know what, maybe it didn't work out in New Mexico, but maybe it'll work out here. But then I was just like, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, 
let me just apply to a few other jobs just in case, just in case I don't get this job. I always apply to multiple jobs at once as well anyway, just in case. And I saw way to go about it. Yeah. (laughs) You you need that like cushion. Yeah. Yeah. If you did one at a time, the odds of you getting hired (laughs) are very low, are very low. Imagine you just apply for one. This is the job I want. This is it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. I better get it because <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's all I'm applying to. <laughs> but yeah, so then I applied to a few other jobs, um, like office assistant work and just stuff like that. And I found a listing for a job working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I have zero, at this point, I have zero experience with that. I did very brief volunteer work back in like junior high, I think, or even, I think even high school for community service through Girl Scouts. And other than that, I really didn't have a lot of experience with that community, but I applied and I was just like, we'll see what happens. I did not think I was going to get a phone call and I did. And I got an interview and I went to the interview and I told them straight up, I was like, I have, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I have no idea what this job entails. I have no idea what to expect. I have very minimal experience. So that's it. This is what I have experience in. And thank you for your time kind of situation. The next day I got offered the position. I had also been offered the position at the real estate office. So Mm -hmm. I remember thinking like, okay, so I can go with my comfort zone and go do real estate, or I can go completely out of my comfort zone and try something that I've never done before. Both are things that I'm willing to do. And so this was when my like spirituality kind of came in. I remember Mm -hmm. this was really, I think recently in this time, I had been introduced to tarot cards and I had been using them pretty regularly and getting used to the cards and what they meant and stuff like that. And I decided to do just a spread, just a career spread to see what it would say. And essentially it just, it said, take the IDD job. And so I did. And I, I accepted the offer and within a month, I found, I realized that I had found my passion in life. This job changed my life in so many different ways. Like I learned so much about myself. I was required to bring out sides of myself that I didn't even know were there or they, I knew that they were there, but they were buried so deep underneath all the trauma and the drama and the crap. And you know what I mean? Just, yeah things that I hadn't utilized in a very long time. And so this job just, it was one of the best experiences I got out of Colorado because I found my passion. I found my career. I found what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's all because I stepped out of my comfort zone. Yeah. That's incredible. And I'm sure obviously with all of the stuff, you know, we talked a little bit more in part one about relationships and friendships Mm -hmm. and how those things were playing a part. And there's that whole other side to your life, which is working. And it really emphasizes, I feel like just the role that obviously you're spending so much time, how much, how important it is what you're doing. You Mm -hmm. know, when you were serving, it was one, you know, there it's a certain environment and it's Mm -hmm. a certain 
feeling that you had towards it and about it. And, and so this signaled a shift, which is great. And that's the first sign also in a way to how do you take some of those things into, you know, the other areas of your life. And, and so my next question is how, how did you kind of take the pain from that rock bottom that we had talked about with the DUI and all of that and using it to fuel your kind of newfound purpose that you've gotten through work and all of that. Yeah. So I think we also talked about this, um, recently where when I first started this job, I was noticing that these tools and this personality and this person who was at this job was only, you know, I was only that person at work. And then in my personal life, once I clocked out, I was not that person that I, in this line of work in the IDD community, when you are working with people that are fragile, that have really, really intense behaviors that are physically um, manifesting their disability, you have to be an authority figure. You have to be confident in what you're saying. You have to trust yourself. You have to have respect. You need to be respected. You are an authority figure in these people's lives and they rely on you for care. They rely on you to communicate with the rest of the community what is going on with them internally and why it's manifesting this way. Mm -hmm. But then I would go home or I would be around my group of friends and that was not happening. I was not advocating for myself. I was not getting respect. I was not you know, it was, it was weird. And I even remember one of my friends told me like, I can't even imagine you at work. I can't imagine you doing your job. And that should have been a red flag. Cause I was like, what do you mean? And that, that's weird. That's a weird thing to say. So I look back on those moments and I realize my job makes me happy. Right. I look at my job and I'm, I feel like I know, sorry, I know that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, regardless of the good and bad days. And I'm happy. I'm truly, genuinely happy with what I'm doing every single day. Clearly, this aligns with my values, my beliefs, my interests, what makes me happy. I'm giving back to the community. I'm doing something that's worthwhile. I'm doing something that makes a difference in other people's lives. This is who I am. This is who I truly am and what I want to do. So with this job, it has taught me who I am at the core, what I'm good at. I'm good at caring for people. I'm good at taking care of people who may not have as many abilities. And I'm putting air quotes around abilities. It taught me how to have a lot more understanding for people and because of that, it has fueled me to do better and be better every single day. If these people that I'm working with with disabilities can show up every single day, can have a smile on their face, can do things that they necessarily don't want to do. No one wants to go to work. Not everyone has the social battery to go out in public for hours at a time, but they do it. And they do it with a positive attitude, not all the time, but they do. You see the obstacles that other people have to overcome 
yeah. in their lives every single day to do things that you know, we take for granted or are easier for us than other people or whatever it is. Everybody mm-hmm. has different things. And in that, it, it is learning like, okay, it's empathy, really. Yeah. It's and the deepest form, just understanding someone else's experience and not taking for granted your own experience, but also, you know, Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, sorry, I think I also just kind of forgot your question, but now I remember it. Like, (laughs) not that I forgot it, but I was like, where am I going with this? No, I was just like, where am I going with this? Because I, obviously this job, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot emotionally. It's a lot physically. It's a lot mentally. And there's a lot of people out there who say like, I don't know, I, I couldn't do it. There's no way that I could do it. And I thought that too, when I originally applied for this job, like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not sure, but I can. And it's because it brings out these qualities in you that you don't even realize you possess. And that's really what it came to is like, wow, I am someone who can advocate for myself. I am someone who can advocate for other people. I have empathy. I have respect for people. I'm a very patient person. I'm a very understanding person because I've had my own issues in life. And when you are not a stranger to resilience, you recognize resilience, resiliency in other people. And so people with disabilities, they're not that much different from people with quote unquote abilities. They just have a limitation in how those abilities are manifested, but they find a way every single time. It may take some time, but they do it. And so this job forced me to real, like to come to the realization of, I don't have an excuse to not do and be better every single day because these people can do it. And again, like I said, I, this job brought out qualities in me that had been repressed, that had been pushed down. And I realized that this is, this is what, this is who I am. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying in part one of like, when I first moved there, there was that part of me that was like, cling to your past. No, pay attention to who you are presently. No, who do you want to be? And this job showed me who I was, who I am and who I can be all at once. And I like that person, (laughs) you know, I love that person. I love who I am when I'm at work. I love who I am when I'm with my clients. I love who I am when I see my clients achieve something that they've had such a hard time with for so long. That is what fuels me to do and be better is these people I work with. And I can't imagine a life not working with this community because it brings out the best in me, which also helps me bring out the best in them. Yeah. So has that then impacted your social life in a way? Have you been able to, I know you kind of expressed that gap of like, okay, here I am at work and here I am outside of work. Did it help you bridge that gap? Yeah, definitely. I I think my job, along with other things that happened throughout my time in Colorado, really forced me to refocus on my values and my beliefs and what's mm-hmm. important to me and what I'm interested in. And a lot of that 
you know, you need people in your life that also bring that out of you. And after having that contrast of who I am at work and who I am in my personal life are two separate things, I realized I was doing something wrong here. And I think that that's what I was trying to say earlier is there's this person that I love and this person that I hate, which one is the real me? Hmm. And so now I look at that and I realize I need to be around people who bring this work Alexis out of me. People should not look at me and think, I can't imagine you doing that kind of work. Yeah. That's, that, that means you don't really know who I am. You don't know me. You don't know my values and my beliefs and what fuels my fire every single day. If you don't, if you can't envision me doing this kind of work. When I'm sitting in therapy, the girls that I do therapy with and my therapist, they know I'm a caregiver. They, they called it before I even told them what my pro- profession was, that I'm someone who is a very caring person, I'm a very nurturing person. And the friendships that I do have, the long distance friendships, the friendships I've had since I was five, you know, people that I've had in my life for a long period of time, they know that about me. They know that I'm a very caring, patient, understanding, empathetic person. Mm -hmm. That's who I am. And from now on, looking back at my past friendships and what that brought out of me, I don't ever want to be there again. I want to be around people who see that side of me, the side of me that is in love with who I am at the core. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, a lot of this has been about, and we've seen how this has taught you a lot, obviously, not just about yourself. And so bigger picture wise, what do you feel like it's taught you and has the potential to teach others about, you know, how we treat others, what we value in society, all of that with working with people with disabilities? People in the IDD community, I have found are just magnified versions of people with abilities. I think I think I mentioned to you in one of our conversations that I saw a lot of myself in these individuals. I saw, you know, obviously the way they manifested their anxiety or their depression or other issues they may have had were a lot more magnified, but I did see like, oh, you know what? I used to do that. Or, you know, we had a lot of clients where if they felt that they were overqualified or that the job that they were doing was kind of like, I mastered how to use a broom. I don't know why I'm still having to do this kind of situation. They would just be like, I'm not going. They would refuse. They would refuse to do whatever tasks were on their task list. And we would have to sit at base all day and I would sit there for six hours out of the day doing absolutely nothing because this person is refusing and you can't make them, they're adults. And I would remember thinking to myself, there was plenty of times at school when I thought the project we were doing or the homework I had to do was dumb because I didn't feel like it made me smarter or I didn't think that it was a way to show how smart you are. And so I wouldn't do it. And so I would see so much of myself in these people. I would see how their anxiety would manifest. And I would think to myself like, oh, wow, like I do the same thing. I know how you feel. Or people who've experienced trauma, I would see their PTSD flare up. And I would think to myself like, 
do the exact same thing. Like, and so these people who are disabled, quote unquote, are really not that much different from, from people who are able-bodied. I think we think, one thing that I think about is that saying like, it takes a village, right? It takes mm-hmm. a village and to take care of someone. Even if you have two parents and a sibling, you probably were taken care of by your aunt and your uncle. You're probably taken care of by a caregiver at some point. You probably had to go to daycare at some point. And in this situation, we are these people's village. How different is that from any other community out there? Mm. The needs and the wants of these people with disabilities is not that different from what you and I want or what the next person wants. We are all the same. We are all human beings who need these same exact things. Some of them need, some, some people need a little bit more Uh, Some people require a little bit more, but they're still human. And so when I've worked with this community, I've realized this is across the board. This is across the board what people require, what human beings require, what we need to function as a community. Going back to that, like it takes a village. If the village is a positive place, if you come from a positive background, you have a positive, you have positive energy around you, your community is is a positive place. The outcome is going to be really good. If you constantly have support, if you have people supporting your goals and your dreams and the things that you want to do in life without any negativity, you're going to be able to do it. So in this community, that's what is expected from staff. You are the support system for these people. You are the one who are, who's building these people up, your clients up. You, they want to get a job eventually at a movie theater selling tickets. What do we need to do to get them there? How do we set them up for success? Mm-hmm. How is that different from you and I wanting to go to college to pursue this, that, and the other? If you're set up for success, you're going to do it, Right. And it, it just circles back all of these things that I was doing in my job with a community that is often overlooked. It's yeah. the same thing that quote unquote able-bodied people need and require as well. Yeah. Human, basic human needs. What is it? Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. And it really isn't, like you said, everybody needs the same things. Those things may look different, but yeah, you can't minimize them for other people. Yeah. They rely on us to understand them. They want us to care about them. They want us to love them. They want us to help them be the best version of themselves. But that's what we want too. And so it blows my mind. You know, I what used to bother me is when I would do day program and I would take these individuals out into the public and the amount of people who would stare or point or whisper or things like that, it would bug me. Cause I'm just like, these are human beings. And this is a community that has been through a lot. There is such a history with this community mm-hmm. and it just would blow my mind. Cause I was like, they require and need the same thing that you do. And I, I don't get it. And so that's why it's so important to me to continue with this job and go to work every day and 
make a difference in these people's lives because at the same time I'm advocating for them yeah. and I'm educating people about this community. And that's the best thing you can do for people who are overlooked and people who are forgotten and people who are abused and people yeah. who are left behind is just advocating. Like, yeah, definitely. It sounds like it's both an opportunity and a major challenge. Would you say that that's one of the most challenging parts about it? So like I said, this line of work is challenging in so many different ways. I have been punched. I have been kicked. I have had my hair ripped out of my skull. I have been spit on. I have been called every name in the book. I have been called every combination of names in the book, which is always interesting. And still, nothing has been as challenging as going out in public and seeing how little people are educated on this community and how little respect people have for people with disabilities. There is nothing that pisses me off more than when someone speaks to them like they're a child or someone speaks to them like they are slow or someone speaks to them like they don't understand what is being said. When they 110% know exactly what you are saying to them, they are some of the most intuitive people ever. There have been, there were times when I would go to work and I just wasn't having a good morning. Like it, it didn't really, nothing would happen or whatever. It was just one of those woke up on the wrong side of the bed situations. Didn't have my coffee or whatever. And I would go to work and I just wasn't in it. And clients would come up to me and rub my back or ask me, are you okay today? Even though I had not said anything or I didn't think I looked like I was upset or stuff like that. These, these individuals are so intuitive. They, they just know. And so you may think that you staring at them, they don't notice. They do. You may think they don't hear you when you're laughing or whispering. They do. And that really was the biggest challenge. I could have been punched in the face every single day and it really wouldn't have mattered to me. I learned pretty quickly that those things are not personal it's a manifestation of their feeling. It's a manifestation of their disability. It's a manifestation of just so many different things. They weren't given the tools to say, I'm angry or I'm hungry or this, that, and the other. So they just do something impulsive. And I had to learn that's not personal. They don't, they're not trying to hurt me. They just don't know how to get their point across or they don't know how to say what they're saying. And all of those things are challenging, but nothing is as challenging as seeing how little educated the general public is about people with disabilities. Yeah. Oh, well, super interesting. And I'm excited to see, obviously, your passion for this and and everything that you do in this area because I mean it just comes across that obviously you've found your thing you've found a purpose and that's really exciting and and like you said you know it's an area that maybe is often overlooked and so as much attention that you and others can bring to it is really important yeah so kind of more bigger picture and thinking about this chapter and moving into 
this year and where you're at currently. I'm curious to know kind of what are some of the ways that your anxiety manifests and what have you identified as some of those triggers or signs that your anxiety is coming on? And if you found anything that's specifically helpful with coping, I know we've spoken about, you know, therapy and religion, spirituality, whatever that is. Um, but yeah, speaking to that a bit. Yeah, sure. So anxiety is interesting. And I think anyone who suffers from it, which in my opinion, 90% of the world probably has anxiety at this point. We've been through a lot. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because one day your anxiety might manifest one way and the next day it's completely different. One day your trigger may be something and the next day you're not triggered by it at all. And it's funny that way because you prepare yourself to have a day full of triggers and you're fine. Or you prepare yourself to go out into the world and just be as normal as possible and you're having an anxiety attack because you see a goose walking by itself. That was actually something that happened to me a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> I saw a goose on the side of the road walking by himself and I freaked out because I got sad that he had no friends. And that was the weirdest thing ever. Like I- see, Mine would be that, and I would freak out about it because I'd be like, okay, it's gonna get hit by a car. Where does it need to be? I do that all with animals in particular. I, ugh. When yeah. you see a dog get lost on the loose, I, I have to go get it. Like mm -hmm. I, I can't because then my mind just weaves all the possible stories. But also, I know I, this is a tangent, but <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> I see a dog and a dog's lost and I'm trying to catch it. I'm also like, oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, no. Because then you're afraid that you're going to chase it into a worse situation mm -hmm. and just that anyway, anxiety amplified. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's true. Like it, you can be triggered by the weirdest things sometimes. And sometimes you can be triggered by things that are worth the trigger. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, you know, those things happen. Um, yeah, actually, uh, I don't mean to cut it. No, again. no, please <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> but I, that just was really interesting about like the, the triggers. And sometimes it's just like, you don't even know what it was at all. You can't even identify mm -hmm. it. Um, and it, the most difficult part is I feel like communicating that with other people and being able to express that to other people is one of the biggest challenges and perhaps needs to be discussed more, um, yeah. because it's something that it it comes on and it's not always, it's not always the same. So even the people who come up, you know, become accustomed to your triggers and all that stuff, they, it's still difficult. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Um, in therapy recently, we were talking about triggers and how to identify them. Because sometimes people in group will say, I had an anxiety attack last night and I have no idea why. I was fine. I was watching TV and out of nowhere, I just started having an anxiety attack. And the therapist would say like, well, what triggered it? Well, I don't know what triggered it. You don't know mm -hmm. what triggered it. No, I literally was watching TV and I was fine well, was there anything that you needed to be doing? Like, was there something that you should have been doing or, and we st would start deciphering it. And oh, so, yeah. yeah. And so that sometimes it could literally just be, 
you're having an anxiety attack because subconsciously you are feeling guilty for sitting around watching TV when you could probably be doing the dishes or you could probably put that load of laundry away that's in the dryer. You're not thinking about that. You didn't walk past the dryer and have an anxiety attack because you didn't put your laundry away, but subconsciously you are making yourself feel guilty because you probably have had something traumatic happen in your life that made you feel guilt a lot. And so when you try to do things to take care of yourself, you're like, how can I feel guilty for taking care of myself? How can I make myself feel guilty for just sitting on the couch and relaxing? So that's one coping method that I've learned is to like sit there and decipher it. Like what, why am I, I, there's nothing that I can see that triggered me. My usual triggers are not around. No one said anything to me. You know, there's nothing really happening. Let's dig a little bit deeper here. Let's see what the possible issue is. And honestly, sometimes it literally is nothing. Sometimes you just have anxiety. That's part of the disorder. Yes. And And I actually think that's important because otherwise you get anxiety about having anxiety. And that's one of those, then you're anxious about why you might be anxious. And it doesn't always, like you said, if you do some searching and there's no apparent thing, also don't get hung up on it Mm -hmm. because that will also (laughs) lead you down a, a path. Yeah, absolutely. So when I am aware of anxiety, it looks like a bunch of different things. Sometimes it's a combination of these things. Sometimes it's one of these things. Sometimes it's none of these things. And it's something brand new. But the most, I guess, prominent features of anxiety for me is shaking, hyperventilating, um, wanting to be by myself, wanting to be around people, being completely still, just wanting to lay down and do nothing. Sometimes it's, I need to be functioning. I need to go for a walk. I need to, you know, I'm starting to feel that anxious feeling where someone's sitting on my chest and I need to just get up. I need to get up and start walking. Sometimes it's not being able to function at all where I literally just can't do anything and I'm just stuck almost. I've had these weird moments where I've felt anxious and then I literally freeze. And I can't get up from where I'm at. Even if I'm telling myself, Alexis, swing your legs over the bed, sit up and go do something. And I can't, I physically cannot. Sometimes my anxiety manifests by wanting to eat. Sometimes my anxiety manifests by literally not wanting to eat at all. And sometimes that can be very dangerous because I can go days without eating. And I want to eat, but I can't. And... Another thing I think is pretty common is wanting to sleep. I get, in, I get anxious and I just want to sleep. I just, I don't want to deal with whatever is making me anxious and I just want to sleep. But then it also manifests by not sleeping at all and not feeling tired and staying awake for 48 hours because you just are so anxious. So it looks different all the time. And, but those are the ones that I tend to notice most often. When it comes to triggers, like I said, it really just depends. One day, everything can trigger me, and the next day, nothing can trigger me. I, The things that are obvious, I do my very best to 
not allow in my life. So for example, something that's really triggering for me, especially in the last few years is social media. I had to completely get rid of Twitter. I love Twitter. I think it's, you know, people are interesting. You see a lot of, um, really weird things on Twitter, but it got to a point where I had to delete it because there was, you can't control what you see sometimes because you're following all these people and then you see what they're retweeting or you see what Hmm. someone like, you know what I mean? Like you can't always control what comes up on your newsfeed. And I would get some really triggering things up there and I would unfollow people. I would block accounts. I would do something so that I wouldn't see that trigger again, but then I would see something else that was triggering, or I would see a different account post the same exact thing as that other account. So I was just like, I need to delete this because obviously every time I get on there, there's going to be something that triggers me. Another thing is Instagram. I had to go on a unfollowing spree because I was following people that made me feel like shit. And it's not like they were doing, they were targeting me. You know what I mean? Like no one was posting like, hey, Alexis, I'm triggering you. But, you know, people like the Jenners and the Kardashians and these influencers that have these really nice bodies and these nice houses and these cars, I would look at them and I'd be like, why don't I have that? What have I done in my life to not deserve these things? Or this is what apparently makes people happy, or this is what gives you status in life, or this is what, what it looks like when you've done well for yourself. Meanwhile, I'm here in Colorado, barely able to afford rent. Sometimes I can't even afford a meal. This DUI cleaned me out. So I would see these people that had their life together on social media and it triggered me and I would have anxiety. You know, some TV shows trigger me. I had to stop watching them. Sometimes there's just, it's always different. The every day is different when it comes to triggers and anxiety. And the best thing for me when I am feeling triggered by anything is to take a moment and figure out why I'm being triggered. Because most of the time you're being triggered because it's something you have not dealt with yet. It's something you haven't acknowledged yet. It's Mm -hmm. something that subconsciously you have repressed. And when it comes up, you're like, oh my God, I'm not ready to deal with this. And another thing with anxiety is it's not always a negative thing. Sometimes you're having anxiety and you automatically correlate anxiousness with something negative when it could just be your body's way of telling you you really care about this thing that's happening something that I get anxious about is when I have to do a UA and it's not because I'm scared of getting caught because I'm obviously not drinking or smoking but I get anxious because I don't want to mess up you know what I mean like I want to make sure that I'm doing all of the right things and making sure that I'm, you know, staying out of trouble. And I want, you know, the court and I want my probation officer to know that I'm taking this stuff seriously. So whenever I get the message that says you need to test today, I have anxiety and I have to tell myself, this is not a negative thing. This is your body telling you that you genuinely care about doing everything correctly with the DUI. So sometimes I have to sit with my anxiety And I have to tell myself like, all right, I'm having anxiety. Honor it for a second. You are having anxiety. Feel it. If you need to cry, cry. If you need to 
eat something, eat something. If you need to take a shower, take a shower. Do what you need to do to help this anxious feeling. And then let's figure out why you're having it and let's work through it. Sometimes that doesn't work and I have to read a book or I need to go for a walk or I need to call my mom or I need to play with my dog or I need to watch something mindless. And sometimes I just have to sit with it and let the anxiousness do its thing. So it's really just comes down to knowing yourself, knowing what works for you and being open to new ways of navigating your triggers and how you're feeling. I also, I, I also think because, you know, there are, with anxiety, there are irrational thoughts, mm-hmm. obviously, and feelings that come up that are not rooted in what's really going on. But what can be really tricky, I think, for people both on the inside of that and the outside of that is what about when it is warranted? Mm-hmm. And this is something I always think about this because there are times where what you're having anxiety about is completely warranted and, and is actually rooted in reality. And it's your self telling, it's you telling yourself that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you're, you're triggering yourself for a good reason, but because you have all of these experiences of being triggered for irrational things, it can be kind of really interesting to try to figure that out of like, okay, is this a rational mm-hmm. thing that's going on with me right now that I need to pay attention to, or is it not? And I think that's something that's also difficult then to convey to someone else and be like, yeah. I know that you might think that this is an irrational anxiety that I'm having, but I also, and when you're in it, they're all rational. That, and that's the thing. They yeah. all feel very real and rational. It's not until usually hindsight where you're like, okay, that wasn't necessarily warranted for that moment, but in other times it is. So that's really tricky. And I think that's a big part of like understanding and, and helping other people who have anxiety. And that's something that I feel like I've learned or tried to be tuned into because that's the thing. And, you know, other people might be like, oh, She's going, she's having anxiety right now, right? Mm-hmm. And identify that in you and be like, oh, okay, this is her reaction and it's not actually warranted or whatever, which then usually just triggers it more. Or yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but if they just, yeah, it, it's, in, it's a, just an interesting thing to think about. And I think it's something that I like discussing with people because it is kind of a minefield of like, okay, is this real? Is it not real? Do I need to be reacting to this or do I not? And when you're in it, it's hard to know. Yeah. It's funny that you actually mentioned that because I recently was in a therapy session and I was talking about some of the things that have been triggering me that I felt were irrational, but also rational uh, Mm -hmm. because it's something that could happen and it's very real, but it's also something that other people might not understand. And I think I may have told you that about this as well, but one of the things that makes me anxious and genuinely keeps me up at night, gen- genuinely keeps me up at night to where I'm having nightmares about it. And I, it's bad 
is that I am going to get in my car and my breathalyzer is going to be on one of its days where it's not working and someone is going to take advantage of that situation. Mm. There is clearly a lot of stuff going on these days with the sex trafficking. Women are going missing. I have anxiety that I'm going to get in my car one day, turn on my breathalyzer. Someone's going to see a young woman getting in her car, being distracted with something in the car and use that as an opportunity to hurt me in some way. And when Mm. I explain that to people, they're like, that is a very, um, long shot of happening. However, yeah. it happens. It's pl- it is plausible. Exactly. So it's like, no, that's rooted in something real that happens and has happened. And also it's a long shot. It can be both things, but that's what is frustrating, you know, just yeah. difficult to navigate. So I guess a transitioning point would be obviously therapy has been extremely helpful for you in some forms more than others. Mm -hmm. And it really is such an individual thing. So what has been your experience with different types of therapy? And if you have any necessarily, you know, any advice that you'd give? I am a very big advocate for therapy. (laughs) I love therapy. (laughs) I used to not be a therapy person. I tried therapy in middle school and junior high. It didn't really work out for me. I, which is weird because I'm a talker. So I like to talk about my issues and my problems and things that I'm going through, but I just couldn't do it. It was weird to like sit with someone who is taking notes while you're talking. I don't know. It was just like weird for me when I was younger. And then I tried therapy again as I became a teenager and then into an adult. And then when I experienced a lot of trauma at 18, 19, 20, I really tried therapy but instead of therapy they were like here's some medications good Mm -hmm. luck Mm -hmm. and that did not work for me so again I'm a huge advocate for therapy I personally personally think everyone should have a therapist sometimes you don't for me what I found especially in the beginning of therapy is I would Mm -hmm. use the entire hour to just talk and Mm -hmm. get it out and vent and usually I would find (laughs) my solutions in me talking because I would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and then I'd be like oh wait you know what this actually could probably solve this problem and my therapist would be like there you go good job like great job today (laughs) goodbye send me on my way and it (laughs) worked no I'm kidding (laughs) no it yeah and then but then of course I've also done a different kind of therapy called EMDR which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it is for people with PTSD. A lot of um, war veterans get EMDR therapy. People with any type of trauma uh, utilize EMDR. And that worked for me. I had never heard of it before. No one had ever offered it to me before. And when it was offered to me at that point, I was just like, I mean, I'll try anything at this point (laughs) because I need help. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And we mixed that with acupuncture therapy. And so I was getting these two different kinds of therapy while also allowed to vent. And it was the best combination of things for me. And I've always said, I think therapy and looking for a therapist should be like dating. I think you should 
quote unquote, go on a few dates, you know, have a consultation with a few different therapists, maybe have another session after you have your consultation, see how things go and make a decision from there. You should be able to connect with your therapist. You should feel safe with your therapist. You should feel like your therapist understands you. And sometimes you don't click with a therapist. I've had plenty of therapists where I did not click with them. And I have had a couple that I really enjoyed and I really did do a lot of work. Moving to Colorado was the start of the longest consecutive time that I've been in therapy. I've been in therapy consecutively three years and that's the longest ever in my life. And it has been so beneficial. Even, it, you know, it sucked because during the time of DUI was my, of my DUI was mm -hmm. COVID. So I didn't get to go into the office and see my therapist, which I think played a huge role in the decline of my mental health for those few months. So because I wasn't going into my therapist and talking about these issues that I was having, it sucked. It was really hard for me. And now that I'm in a more consistent schedule doing therapy twice a week, I can handle these things that I've been going through for the last year. Yeah. So I'm, I love therapy. I think everyone should try it. I think there's, there's so many resources out there to find a therapist. Um, you know, obviously insurance as I know is it's an issue, but there are mm -hmm. companies out there that don't require insurance. There are support groups, which I used to be like, God, no, you'll never catch me in a support group. That's scary. Cause you see these like, media portrayals of like, hi, my name is Alexis. Hi, Alexis. Like one of those kind of situations. That's not what it is at all. It's literally one of the most uplifting like times in my week. Like I love going to therapy. And so I just, I'll always advocate for it. And I'll always tell people, go to a therapist, even if you're okay, even if you're not really struggling in life or, you know, you're not suffering from any mental illness or anything like that, just go. There is no harm in it. What, hmm. what do you have to lose? Awesome. Well, there you go. There's your ad for therapy right there. <laughs> and a great, uh, so now moving into our final section of this discussion, and this one's titled Coming Home. And home means a lot more than just a house, a place, a city, and in, in this section, I was really thinking about how meeting yourself emotionally is coming home to yourself. And, mm -hmm. and California also just happens to be where you're from. So yeah. tell us a little bit about where you're at right now and why this episode is titled what it is. <laughs> yeah, so I am in one of the best places mentally, emotionally, physically ever. In my 20, almost 26 years of life, I'm the happiest I have ever been. And that to me is, like you said, coming home to myself. I look in the reflection of the mirror and I love myself. Did it take a lot of crap to get here? Yes. Would I have done things differently? Of course. But I'm here now and I'm really, really proud of myself. And that is something that I have never been able to say before, ever, or at least say it and believe it and mean it. Mm. This last 
three years was my mountaintop. Um, it was my Everest. And I looked, especially the last year, I looked at the top of it and I saw the light at the end of it. And I had no idea how I was going to do it. And I'm here. I'm at the top. I made it. And I am the one who did the work. Me, nobody else. No one can say that they did this for me. And I am so incredibly proud of myself. You know, I struggled for a little bit because there was a part of me that I was talking to my therapist about this the other day. Mm -hmm. There's these two sides of the spectrum when you've gone through a DUI, I think there's the people who literally don't care about it and have moved on with their lives and it is what it is and whatever. And I, I thought to myself, that will never be me. But then there's the people that are just like, it, it ruined my life. My life is over. I'm never going to move past this. I'm going to, you know, it's like the end of the world. And I was like, how do I find a happy medium here where I'm not minimizing what happened, but I'm also really freaking proud of myself for getting through it. And I'm ready to move on with my life without forgetting what happened. And I struggled with the teeter-totter of that spectrum for a while. And I'm finally in a place where I look back, I am sorry for what I did. I'm sorry to myself. I'm sorry for putting people I loved in a shitty situation. I'm sorry for disappointing people and myself. I have learned from this mistake and I'm at a point where I'm ready to move forward. And because I have been able to take responsibility, take accountability, use this negative situation to create positives, it has helped me progress as a person. And because of that, I'm finally able to say I am in a position in my life where I am so incredibly happy. And because I worked my ass off, Literally, I did literally worked my ass off, you know, and I am now able to leave the state of Colorado. I would not have been able to leave had I not taken this seriously. I was supposed to stay here for 18 months, but because I worked my ass off, because I took this shit seriously, because I took responsibility, I literally just, I was an adult about the situation. I am given the reward of being able to go home. And in being able to go home to California, I'm home with myself. I have found this Alexis that I have always been capable of being, that was always there, that was always there at the core, but had been suppressed by so many different things that have happened throughout life. And I've worked through them, I've handled them, and I'm now in a place where I have been given the tools to handle anything that comes my way. Are there still going to be challenges? Of course. Are there still going to be things that don't go my way? Absolutely. Are there still going to be times where I'm going to want to throw in the towel? Yes, I have a mental illness. It's going to be, there's always bad days. But because of the last three years, the last five years, the last 25 years, I have learned how to handle these situations in a much better way than I would have a year ago. Yeah. And I, I'm just so incredibly proud of myself. Yeah. And so, so you're in this space, right? This place that you haven't been before and you feel really great about how things are coming together and, and, and where you're just at emotionally, mentally, all of that. So 
And it is a good time to move in that sense, but also why move is another question. If you have found all those things, why couldn't Colorado be that place for you or why move right now? What is behind that decision? So there's tons of reasons. One, financially, as much as I love Colorado and I would stay here financially, it, it just doesn't work. You know, COVID plus the DUI really, really cleaned me out. And I, you know, I live here by myself and it's very hard to support yourself in general with this economy, with things, you know what I mean? Like it's very hard to live on your own and it's me and my dog. So I'm supporting not just me, but I'm supporting her. Dogs are not cheap. And I decided like I needed to go home. I needed to go and live with my family. Also, obviously, you know, my brother passed away. We're coming up on his year anniversary. And I felt, you know, I wanted to move back a year ago, but it wasn't the right time. And I think now that I've worked through a lot of things within myself, I have the mindset to move home while my family is still grieving for my brother. And I have learned how to set boundaries for myself and for my family, like setting those boundaries with them so that I can grieve, but I can also be there for them as well. Also, I promised my brother when I said my goodbyes to him that I was going to be there for his kids. Mm -hmm. Daniel had a lot of problems and it's not a secret. My family is not Uh, We don't hide the fact that Daniel lived a, um, a rough life and he made a lot of choices. My brother really wanted to change. My brother desperately wanted to get clean. My brother desperately did not want to be in the streets anymore. He did not want to be doing these dangerous things that he was doing, but he couldn't change as desperately as he wanted to. He couldn't. And unfortunately, that's why he's not here anymore. But the one thing that my brother loved and cared about more than anything was his family. So when I said my goodbyes to him before we buried him, I told him I was going to honor him and his memory by being there for the family and being there for his kids. And right, I don't know if I'm going to be there forever. I don't know if I'm going to be there, you know, for a few years. I don't, I don't know what the future holds, but what I know is right now, that's where I need to be. And Mm -hmm. it's what makes the most sense all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And what are, what are you most hopeful for in the future? You know, what, what kind of gets your hopes up thinking about just, you know, short term this year and then also longer term? Yeah. So I think, Practically, I would like to get my financial situation back in order. Um, I definitely would like to get back on my feet. I want to get back to doing what I love. I want to get back to work. I really want to go back to school. Um, I really want to, you know, I was really nervous about going back to school as such a late bloomer because, you know, everyone in our grade has graduated or has, you know, they have their master's already. Like there's all these things that people have already done. And I literally have dropped out of college twice now because I just wasn't ready. So I was kind of insecure about being a late bloomer, but now that I know what I want to do, I'm so excited and I'm so ready to go back to school and to 
you know, just get my degree and move up the career ladder. And I'm so excited because I already have a job in California and I, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm just, I'm so excited to get that like practical part of my life back in order. I'm excited to get back on my feet financially, like I said. Um, But honestly, I'm just, I'm so hopeful for the future because I have set this like mantra for myself of be better, do better, do better, be better. Though that, that is my mantra for the rest of my life is every single day I need to be better than yesterday and I need to do better than mm. the person I was in the past. And that is something that I'm going to live for every single day. And so because that is my mindset, I'm so excited for the possibilities of my future. I am so excited for the possibilities of friendships and relationships and relationships with my family and relation the relationship with myself. I'm so excited because I have now allowed myself to be open to new possibilities and to be open to growth and to be open to new ways of discovering parts of myself. And I'm just, I can't, I'm just, I'm excited and I'm excited to watch my nephews grow up. I'm excited to see my family expand. My brother got married recently. My other brother got married um, recently and I'm excited to watch their marriage blossom. You know, I'm excited for so many different things and I felt like in order for me to experience all of those things, I needed to be in California, Hmm. you know, in Colorado, it's been hard because I've been so far away physically from everybody and social media is only so Hmm. much. You can only do so much with that, but every, my life is in California. And for a while I wasn't ready to move back and now I am. And I only have high hopes for my life when I get back. Yeah. And I I'll say that the thing about being a late bloomer is that, I I mean, I just think there are so many benefits to being a late bloomer Mm -hmm. because when you, now that you're actually, you're going to go and do this thing, you know what you want. And that's something that a lot of people don't. And a lot of people end up having degrees and things that they don't know about or spending Mm -hmm. time in an area. And that's important too, because you figure out what you don't want. And that's, that's a I mean, that's almost the biggest thing is figuring out what you don't want to do with your life, where you don't want to be. And all those things are important. And you had your own education through life experiences and and all of that. And I think that that late bloomer thing is also really valuable because you just you get to now know exactly what you want and go after it and pursue it with a different level of passion and purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's what ultimately I came to that realization of is like, you know what you want to do now. So just yeah. get in there and handle it just like you've handled everything else that's happened over the last year. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, the social media thing is obviously really difficult. I know I, I've had some of that too. I just graduated and, you know, that people will be like, oh, you have your master's now? No. Nope. It was a bachelor's that I graduated with, but because that's our age, right. Mm -hmm. It's, there's that assumption now, but I, again, I, I think that turning that around into a positive, I I was the same deal. I'm, you know, I went when I knew exactly where I wanted to be, Mm -hmm. what I needed to be doing. And with that maturity and that understanding, I feel like it, it was probably more valuable to me if I, rather than going right out of high school. And I think that's different for different people. 
uh, some people they're ready and they know what they want to do. And that's great too. But if you don't, there's, you, there's no, there's less value in it going then, you know? So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm just really excited. I'm really excited yeah. to just kind of begin this new chapter. I'm excited to begin this new version of myself and kind of like put her to work. You know, I've done all this work. I've done all this internal work, external work. I've done so much stuff. And now I'm ready to put her in a position to utilize those tools and to be the best version of Alexis that I can be. And again, I'm so proud of myself. And I feel like now I can sit here and say like, it's possible. You can dig yourself into this deep, 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 deep hole. And if you just put on your big girl pants and handle it, you will come out of it a much better person than you were when you went into that hole. Absolutely. So obviously education, career, friendships, family, relationships, all of that factors into this move. And, and that makes complete sense um, with your descriptions of that. So what are you taking with you from your time in Colorado? And then on the flip side, what are you letting go of and like just leaving there behind you? Yeah. So I'm definitely, like I said before, in the beginning of part one, um, Colorado will always hold a special place in my heart. I definitely plan on visiting. I definitely plan on coming back. I genuinely have deep love for this state and the situations, both good and bad, that I went through in my time here. I'm leaving behind this old version of Alexis, the girl who moved here, the girl even from last year. I'm leaving behind that Alexis. That is not me anymore. That is a version of myself that I am, I'm done with. And while I'm going to carry with me the lessons and the things that I experienced and the aha moments and the tears and the laughs and so on and so forth, I am leaving behind that vessel. I'm leaving behind that version of myself that does not align with who I am now. I'm definitely leaving behind the freaking snow. I never want to see snow again. That's actually really dramatic. I don't, I, I just, <laughs> I'm done for a little bit with the snow. This last winter was, <sighs> was very bad and I'm done for a little bit. Um, I am leaving behind the needy person that was here in the beginning, that person who couldn't be alone right off the bat. I'm leaving behind the codependent Alexis. I'm leaving behind the need for validation. I'm just leaving behind a lot of that negative baggage that I brought. When I showed up to Colorado, I had 25 different bags of crap, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure all 25 of those are staying behind. And instead, brand new luggage, brand new stuff is coming with me to California. And I'm really excited for that. I'm really excited for this new me, this new version of myself. And it's important that I like I said, leave behind those things that don't align with my core beliefs and values anymore, but not forget that person either. Because without that version of myself, I would not be here. And I owe that Alexis a lot. And 
Um, I'm thankful yeah. for her, but she needs to stay <laughs> her ass here. So. <laughs> so with everything you know now, uh, if you had the chance to do it again, would you still move to Colorado? Yeah, I would do it over and over and over and over and over again. And obviously, like I said before, I would try to do it without getting a DUI. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like I said, I obviously had to go through it. It was something that I needed. It was something that, you know, I just had to go through to get to where I am right now. Yeah. I wish that it didn't happen, but it happened. I... I'm a firm believer that you are built for the life that you're given. I don't think anybody can live this life for you. I don't think they're meant to. And so this life that I lived here in Colorado, I was built for it. And I am thankful for this process of being here because it showed me that I'm built for anything that comes my way, that I can handle anything. I may not know exactly how to do it, And I might have to wing it again, but Mm -hmm. I am built for this. There's nothing that the universe won't throw at me that I can't handle. And I think the biggest thing that I like appreciate about my time here in Colorado and one of the reasons why I say I would do it over and over again is because this was the first time in my life that I did something for me that was selfish, not in a bad way. Mm. I had lived my life for such a long time to please others, to gain validation from others, to impress others, to, there were so many different reasons why I made my choices. And the choice to move to Colorado was purely for me. No one else. I wasn't doing it for, I didn't move here for someone. I didn't move here to gain any type of validation. I didn't, I didn't do it for any other reason than the fact that I wanted to. I honored that childlike spirit in Alexis that wanted to be here so badly. And I followed that instinct of you need to be there. You need to go to Colorado. And I did it. And I did it for me and myself and I, period. And I'm so proud of myself because in my opinion, it started that fire in me again to do what I want. As long as I'm not hurting people or hurting myself, it's okay to be selfish. It's not always a negative thing. And if you're making choices that make you happy and you're making choices that ultimately end up with you better than you were before, just do it. Just do it. And like I said, I would do it over and over and over again. I would make that choice over and over and over again because I gave myself the chance to prove that I can do anything that I put my mind to and anything that I want. Do you know Glennon Doyle? No. Uh, Actually, I think maybe the very first time you called me about doing this podcast, I feel like I gave this reference. (laughs) Not not this specific thing, but... um, but this same podcast, I had listened to Glennon Doyle on Brené Brown's podcast and about her book Untamed and all that mm-hmm. good stuff. But anyway, she had a, a line from that book and then it became, it kind of blew up and it mm-hmm. became this thing. And so she has now made 
a podcast, her own podcast about it. And mm-hmm. it's, um, we can do hard things. Mm-hmm. And it's, I always think of it and I, I should have known it obviously resonated with a ton of other people. And that's a, the feedback that she got from yeah. you know the book and, and all of that. But it is something that I, sometimes I tell myself, you know, before I'm going into something or things are going on or I, I don't want to do something. Yeah. And it, we can do hard things. Like there are hard things every single day and you can do them. Mm-hmm. Like we are fully capable of doing them if we, if, if we want to. And if yeah. we take those steps and, and it will be more rewarding and you'll get more out of it if you go after and do those hard things. Yeah, 100%. So in a word or phrase, how would you describe your growth from one year ago to today? So the, a week ago in therapy, um, my therapist put up this quote on our like shared screen and this was the topic for the day. And I read it and I just like, I got this big smile on my face. Cause I was like, I'm about to do this episode. This is so perfect. And it's so accurate to my life and this, this process and journey here in Colorado. And it's a quote by Ellen Glasgow. I think that's how you say her last name. Um, but basically the quote is, life is never what one dreams. It is seldom what one desires. But for the vital spirit and the eager mind, the future will always hold the search for buried treasure and the possibility of high adventure. And I just loved that quote because it's that's exactly what it is and it's something to live by also because it's it's true life is never what you think it's going to be you can have all the expectations you want you can set all of these romanticized expectations for how life should be and what moving should look like and what your first day of a job could look like and what love looks like and all these things. And it's never going to be that way. It's never, ever, ever going to be what you desire ever. But if you continue to have this open mind, if you have the ability to be open to things that can come your way, you will find the treasures in life. And when I read this quote, I was just like, yeah, that's literally what happened to me in California or in Colorado. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't what, you know, the expectations were for Colorado. But when I got to that point of, I want to get something out of this, I reached that buried treasure that was inside me. And I had so many great adventures while I was here and I can... I am forever grateful for that. And that quote, I think, is the best way to describe my time here in Colorado and the best way to reflect on my time here as well. So this brings us to the end of episode six, Farewell to Colorado. And before I sign off here, I just wanted to leave you guys with some final thoughts. And again, just reiterating, life is really hard and I know most of you, if not all of you who are listening, have experienced some kind of hardship in your life. And if you are going through something right now that seems to be really hard and it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm here to tell you that you will get through whatever it is that you're going through. I know 
in the middle of it, it seems so big. And like I mentioned, like this was my Everest. I had no idea how I was going to get through this. But once I took a step back and found the things that work for me, whether it be therapy or some kind of sport or something to help you just reconnect with the things that are important to you and help you reflect on the positive things that there are in your life, you will get through it and you will find that light at the end of the tunnel again and you will conquer your Everest. So I just wanted to let you guys know that if any of you are going through something really hard right now, I will always be here for you guys. I will always be here to listen if you need someone to talk to. My inboxes are always open, my DMs are always open and I would love to help you guys in any way that you need help. With that being said, because it is May and it is Mental Health Awareness Month, I have created a page on my website, www.lexlogicpodcast.com, and there are a few categories under the, I think it's, I think I titled it Helpful Resources, but there's a few categories there. I obviously hope to expand those categories pretty frequently, but in those categories, there's different hotlines, websites, podcasts, and just anything helpful that might people might need when you are going through something that's hard. And if any of you have any resources that you guys would like to share with me that I can post on my website, I would love to receive those. You can send them to me through my contact page on my website. And I just want this to be an ongoing thing so that there is some kind of resource available to you guys if you don't really know where to start. So without making this episode any longer than it has been, thank you guys again so much for listening to my story. And I cannot wait to do episode seven in my new home in California.